0: All right, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. We're gonna have a great session today. This is PEF 7, Plan Before You Leap, Instructional Design for Clinicians. And our esteemed faculty today is Lynn McPherson, Professor and Executive Director in Advanced Postgraduate Education in Palliative Care. Let's give her a big warm welcome. Thank you, Lynn, take it away. Thank you very much. So as much as I love talking about therapeutics and opiate conversion calculations, my favorite thing in the world to talk about is education. So do you think everybody in this room is an educator? Absolutely. Whether you want to or not, you absolutely are an educator. So, you know, it's interesting. I think most of you know that I've designed this awesome program for palliative care people. And we have a course on the education of practitioners in hospice and palliative care, really any field. And people come into this course thinking, oh, good grief, a whole course on this, I got this. And then eight weeks later, they're like, oh, you know, I didn't got this, but now I think I got it. So really, there's much more to this than you realize, especially the better done, the better designed education is the less you probably realize it, uh, but when you've gone through something that is really incredibly well organized, you know it kind of becomes, I think, obvious. Anyway, um, so we're going to talk about plan before you leap, instructional design for clinicians, and this could apply to whether you are designing your own PhD program or you were des- or you're you've been called upon for a curbside consult. Somebody catches you in the bathroom, which is my favorite place for a curbside consult. Oh, I recognize your shoes. Can I ask you a question? So it could be either way. So let's take a look. So I don't have anything to disclose. So we're gonna talk about how a performance problem, so while we've got this problem, we better go educate these people, may or may not be amenable to fixing with an educational intervention. We're going to talk about one instructional design process, a model that I like to use called ADDIE, although there are several. We're going to talk about the bane of your existence, the ABCDs of writing learning objectives. Everybody thinks they know how to write learning objectives, and you know what? You probably don't. This is why we, all the speakers have to submit their their presentations to pain week well ahead of time so that the CE people can look at them and boy, they are merciless. They're like, no, no, you have two verbs in this sentence and you are not allowed to have two verbs. You actually are allowed to have two verbs, but only if you expect the learner to be able to do both things that the verbs are describing and that makes the CE people break out in a total body rash, but I've digressed. And then what about evaluating education? Very important. All right, so here's the search, man. County General Hospital has had several instances of sentinel events that were due to incorrect opioid conversion calculations. So you just can't get away from that with me, can you? Done by new PGY-1 medical residents. The chief of medicine stomps into the staff development office and demands you have to do something. These residents are killing people or leaving them in horrible pain because they don't know how to do these calculations. You need to teach them now. Is education the answer? What do you think? Who votes that yes, we need to teach these young'uns how to do opiate conversion calculations? A couple of hands. So what do the rest of you think? think (laughs) (laughs) We're not beating people up here, okay? Not during my 50 minutes today. Well, if it's not education, what else could it be? What do you think, front row over here? Richard, what do you think? He says it's multifactorial, so it could be more than just education, right? Right, so I agree there could be more to it than simply a lack of knowledge. Although I agree with you, I mean, those of you who are physicians, how much content did you receive on opium conversion calculations in your formal curriculum? I'm seeing a lot of zeros. This is not a good look. This is not a good look. All right, so I do like the instructional design process called ADDIE, and there are several, but ADDIE stands for these five steps, analysis, design, development, implementation, and evaluation. So let's talk about analysis first. So the very first thing is, do we have a problem? Do we have a problem that exists that can be addressed by education. And I love this clip part. First woman in the, on the moon. Houston, we have a problem. What? Never mind. What's the problem? Nothing. Please tell us, I'm fine. So, gentlemen, what is code for, I'm, I'm fine is code for what from your wife or girlfriend? What do you think, Dr. Z? You are in big trouble. You are in very big trouble. When you get the I'm fine, head for the hills. All right. So if we look first at this cartoon here, this is looking at, this is the current state of events. So these are your operational results. These are the results that the business is achieving, or in the case of this example, the way that PGY-1 medical residents are doing opiate conversion calculations right now. And what is the employee performance? So what em- Employees currently know or do that keeps the operational results where they are today. So apparently the situation is they're not doing a great job. Where do we want to be? This is our desired state. The results that we want to achieve. We want our PGY1 medical residents to do a great job with these conversion calculations so nobody suffers in pain and we don't kill anybody. So their, their performance would be they know, they would know what to do differently in the future to produce the desired operational results. So here's where we are and here's where we wanna be. How do we get from point A to point B? So this, I'm sure you've all heard of gap analysis. We have a performance problem. We have to do an analysis to see who dropped the ball where, what can we do to fix this? So a gap analysis is, do we know the cause of the gap? If we do, great, just go on down here. If we don't, we have to do a root cause analysis. And then if a lack of skill or knowledge is disclosed by the root cause analysis, then we need to go ahead and do our training analysis. So as you can see, this is an example of a fishbone looking at all the different things that could come into play. The reason I'm spending so much time on this is so many times there's a performance problem and the boss goes to the education staff development people and says, you have to fix this. And then three months later, when it doesn't fix it, they get all hot and bothered at the staff development people, when in fact, a lack of education was never the problem to begin with. So you're setting yourself up for failure. So you have to make sure this is really something amenable from education. So when you look at all these different variables, what do we need? Maybe we need more physical resources. Maybe for some reason this crop of PGY-1 medical residents, nobody bought them a cell phone and they don't have a calculator. I mean, that's pretty darn unlikely, but maybe it's that. Structure or process. Maybe they need information. Certainly I do believe they probably need education. Maybe they're not motivated to do this. Maybe they are brand new in their practice. They've been out, what now, two months now out in the practice here? My niece is a a first-year surgical resident at Penn Med she wants to be a trauma surgeon, ew, anyway, no no value judgment here. Um, Maybe they've heard of this opioid crisis and they are scared to death about doing an opioid conversion calculation and they just don't want anything to do with it. So it could be maybe that. So lots of things could be going on. So the first step of ADDIE is analysis. So the who, what, where, when, why, and, and by whom, of the design process. So really getting your arms around the whole problem. Does a problem exist that can be uh, addressed by education? So let's assume in this situation that is the case. So we're gonna ask ourselves, what are the goals and objectives? What resources do we have? Who requires the training? What are their needs? So we, the, the step that is most often overlooked in instructional design is audience analysis. And this is critically important. And the example I always give is I live uh, on the eastern shore of Maryland, right across the Bay Bridge from Annapolis, and we have a huge hospice in our area. It's near D.C. called Capital Hospice. It was an amalgamation of like 14 hospice programs. And about 10 years ago, they asked me if I would give a talk on the medications that we use to treat heart failure at end of life. I said, sure, I'd be happy to do it. So I kept letting it slide and letting it slide. It's like a week before the thing. And they called me and said, we're really sorry, but we didn't get enough cardiologists to sign up. I almost had a stroke. I thought it was for hospice nurses. I never asked the question. Do you think it's a little bit different preparing this talk for hospice nurses versus freaking cardiologists? I almost had the big one. So that would have been good, but there were no cardiologists around, so that would have been bad, I guess. So you need to know who is in the audience and what are they looking for? So when we talk about the goals of training, we have to craft a problem statement to kind of get your arms around the whole set here. There are two elements to a problem statement. The problem is, and it results in X, Y, Z. So we could, here's an example. Staff do not close grant budgets in accordance with federal regulations. That's the first part, that's the problem. And the resulting in non-compliance fees. So this is what's happening. So how would you state our performance problem for our PGY-1 residents? Dr. Pepin, what do you think? So you should never look me in the eye. Dude, what were you thinking? <laughs> Give me a performance statement here, a problem so, statement. I, uh, the,
1: the, I, you want a phone to
0: your question, is, is a little more complex. Like, uh, first of all, um, how we deliver the information. Yeah, but d- don't even go there yet. You're, you're getting way over my head here. It is important, but I'm just asking you to tell me what's the sitch? Uh, we the <laughs> he was snoozing. He was doing his grocery list, wasn't he? I know he was. But do you want to give me the sitch? The question is do our residents know how to, it's not a question, it's a statement. It's a statement. For example, PGY-1 medical residents are making incorrect calculations when switching from one opioid regimen to a different opioid regimen, that's the problem, resulting in opioid overdose and toxicity or poorly controlled pain. That's the, the sitch in a nutshell, am I right? Is everybody on board with me there? I mean, we're not even gotten to the point of what Dr. Papen was talking about. Like, he's right. The data on, like, you coming here and you changing what you do for a living based on my awesome lecture today is pretty darn slim. I know. As adorable as I am, it's very dismal. All right. Who is in the audience? This, again, is the easiest of the public speaking variables to understand and is absolutely the number one item that speakers overlook all the time, all the time. So to be an effective speaker, you need to understand how your audience is likely to react to what you say. Do you worry about that? Do you worry about giving a presentation and wondering, oh my God, are they gonna be with me or against me? Like I remember maybe five or six years ago at our school, our university, everybody at all the schools, medicine, nursing, pharmacy, social work, dentistry, law, and graduate school had to go to civility training Well, how do you think that went over? A whole six-hour program. I wanted to walk in the room and say, bite me. But I thought, well, that's not very civil. Maybe I shouldn't do that. So when we walked in the room, the first thing she said is, "I bet you'd rather eat a bug than be here." They kind of broke the ice, and we all laughed. Like, yeah, we really would be, would rather. Um, but you need to understand where is your audience going to be coming from. So it so it helps you decide how to grab their attention. So she chose humor because she knew we would rather take a beating than be there to talk about being civil to each other. Because let's frank, let's be obvious, we're not that civil. So for big conferences, people often They'll come early, they'll talk to the participants. I mean, Dr. Z and I have been here for 12 years, right? Every meeting of pain week, we've been there with bells on. So I think we kind of know who the audience is, but I have a colleague at the School of Pharmacy who would actually go to the venue, including if it was in Paris, which I thought was a thinly veiled attempt to go to Paris for the weekend. And he would actually look at the venue. He would look at the room because you know what happens at the end of the day? So you will all write on your evaluation today. You may say it was fabulous, but it was a little cold in the room and that's my fault. Everything is my fault because I'm the speaker. So you really have to know, I mean, if you don't like to lay out of the room, I mean, I tried to direct you kind of to the middle so nobody sat over there in the North 40 because I would never see them or hear them again. But everything is your fault as the speaker. So who's in the audience? What healthcare disciplines? Is it gonna be nurses or cardiologists? What is their knowledge level of the material? What are they expecting or wanting to know? Are they here because we're making them come or because they have a choice to come? So you had a choice to come here today. The size, the age and gender. Will decision makers to strongly appeal opinionated members be present. So what are they feeling? Are they going to be energetic? So here you are two hours after lunch. Are you really feeling like, woohoo, let's do this? Or are you feeling like, I could really go for a nap right now? Um, Are you cranky? What did this come after? So I used to always complain that we always had our exams at the pharmacy school on Mondays and Wednesdays from 7.30 to 9 a.m. And my class was always at 9.05. It was like, I hate my time slot. They're all like evil after the exam, and then I have to go in there and teach them, and I hope they're going to pay attention when they're all whispering to each other, like, what did you get for number eight? What do you think? Oh, I hated it. Expectations or prejudices. So let's look at our little sheet here. So everybody here kind of has a good feel for what a PGY-1 medical resident looks like. Am I right? So if we're looking at this audience, what do you think their knowledge level of the material is, assuming that their level of opiate conversion calculation content was similar to the experience I just asked you about? So pretty much next to nothing, would you agree? What do you think they are expecting or needing to know? What do you think? You think they even really have their arms around that? They, they might not, they, they may be a little fuzzy on why are they making me do this altogether? Um, are we gonna make their participation mandatory or optional? It's mandatory. The chief of staff was pretty hot, wasn't he or she? The size of the audience. So we have two. We have 20 new residents. Should we do them in one little clump, or should we break them into maybe two clumps of 10? I vote to break them down two. Age and gender distribution. Oh, I was probably like what 25 to 35 years old or so, maybe. Yeah, maybe half men, half women. Um, Will they be opinionated or for or against my topic? Do you think they even, I mean, they're two months into the residency, they're exhausted already. Do they even really have an opinion about this? Do you think maybe they could be a little bit worried about the ramifications of spending time in training? I think maybe that. Um, Will they be energetic and enthusiastic? I don't know about that, but are they gonna be hostile? I hope they're not gonna bring tomatoes and throw them at me. Um, and any other expectations or prejudices to fill their brain as we prepare to roll into this. So here are my thoughts. I think they know next to nothing. I think that maybe, if we're lucky, they might know the very, very, very basics of opiate conversions, and I'm being generous. I think it should be mandatory. I think we should do it in two groups of 10. I think the gender will be 50-50 and the age pretty young. Um, I think their opinion is neutral, but they're worried this is going to be a time suck, and they're gonna to have to stay later at the hospital that night to make up this time. Uh, I think they're tired, and again, they're gonna to have to stay there. And I would suspect they probably think, I got this. They gave us this stupid card the first week of residency training. All I gotta do is look it up, it's right here on the card. If I do this over this equals this over X, boom, solve for X, I could get a third grader to do this. Why are they making me do this stupid training? What do you think, are you with me on that one? All righty, but we're going to show them. All right, so we've analyzed it to death. We kind of know where we're going with this. The next is design. And this is where we always drop the ball. This, I will tell you that designing a learning activity is about 10 times the work of actually doing the learning activity. So um, I have been going uh, deep in, deep, deep, up, up to my hips in designing these 17 courses in our program. And each one has been like giving birth to quintuplets, and then when the course is finally launched, it's a pleasure to teach the course, but boy, the birthing, it's like five babies upside down. It's, it's very painful. All right, so course planning or lecture planning or whatever is front-loaded. So you do a huge amount of work before you launch the lecture, the course, the learning activity. The big thing is where are we going? So it's so important, so for example, When I designed this master's program, I spent a solid year looking at the competency statements from the National Consensus Project, the Joint Commission, every certification or accreditation exam for every single discipline out there in the field of palliative care. That took me a whole year to pull all this information together. I put it in a big pot and I stirred and I stirred and I stirred and I came up with 14 terminal performance objectives. So by the time you are done this master's degree, the minimally competent graduate will be able to do these 14 things. Awesome. Then you do curricular mapping and say, where are we gonna teach all this stuff? And you start with the finish line. Here's where we finish. Then what comes right before they finish? And then what comes right before that? Until you get all the way back to, hello, welcome to the program. So you you, take your, you develop, develop your courses based on the terminal performance objectives. And then each course, Like in my program, for example, and we have to do this in the pharmacy school, in the medical school, in the nursing school. Every single course and every single teaching activity in the course, we have to do curricular mapping to say, is it introducing, is it emphasizing, or is it just reinforcing one of the terminal performance objectives of, for example, the pharmacy school curriculum or my curriculum that I designed? And then each course has its own course outcomes, and then each course, we break it down into eight-week modules, each module has its own module objective. So you can see how granular this gets. And then within the module, we may have three learning activities. Each of them has their own objective. So it builds like a pyramid. How are we gonna break up the trips? You take the course objectives, maybe we've got five or six or seven, and then we break it down into the weeks that we're gonna be doing. Maybe a course is 16 weeks long, might happen to be eight, but maybe it's 16. And then one module might be three weeks, one module might be one week, but you break it down even further. Then how will the students explore along the way? So if we say in this course, we're gonna do these five things and we've got eight weeks to do it, you have to figure out how will what opportunities will they give the students to learn this content? And then another big part of it is how do I assess it? How will I know when they've reached the milestones that I've reached? So anything that you say, so for example, if I say, I, you need to be able to c- convert from immediate release morphine to long-acting morphine. That's one objective in one module of a course, and it supports a larger learning outcome statement for the whole course, and the learning outcome from that course supports one of the terminal performance objectives for the whole darn degree program. Do you see what I'm saying? This is, I know it's, you're going to go blind in your good eye, but it's really important. All right. So the decisions you make depend on where you want your students to end up, and what kind of experiences you want them to have along the way. So we always write these objectives, like by the end of this course or unit or module or week, the students should be able to do X, Y, Z. All right, so then when we go about designing it, what exactly are we talking about in this design phase? Preparing instructional objectives, Then we have to select our learning objects or our instructional materials. So what will we have them do? And I'm gonna show you that in a moment. What are gonna be our instructional methods? I don't know about you, but I hate what I'm doing right now, which is a yappity-yap lecture. So I try very hard, never give a straight 50-minute yappity-yap. I build in active learning. I pick on people. I call on Richard. I can call on Stripes. I can call on Blackshirt over there. I know a couple people over here, these two naughty kittens. I know them. This one over here, (laughs) he's a barrel of laughs. Anyway, you select your tools. You develop your uh, evaluation instruments and your evaluation plan, develop the structure, and so forth. So everybody has heard and learned at some point or another how to write learning objectives, A, B, C, D. Who is the audience, who who will be doing the behavior? What is the behavior? What should they be able to do? C, under what conditions, and D, to what degree. This is really important. Imagine you're back in 10th grade, And you really wanna know, what do I have to know for the exam? That's the battle cry of every student, isn't it? So where do we get our verb? This is Bloom's taxonomy. So my school has gone so crazy. Now we are having to do tagging for every single exam question. And we have to tag the Bloom's taxonomy and our terminal performance objectives for the pharmacy school. We have to do like four different kinds of tagging for every single exam question. So you don't want all of your questions to be simply remembering. Like what are the three signs of X, Y, Z disease? That you just list them. So when you start off a learning objective with list the three colors that the sky could be, that's pretty straightforward because in lecture, you'll say the sky could be blue or gray or pink. It just depends on what's going on with the weather. So that's a very low, terminal performance objective. So we would like to take them a little bit higher because when you get out there as that brain surgeon, they're not gonna ask you to list what kind of a clamp you're gonna use. They're gonna say, can you remove this brain tumor? That is the payoff for somebody who's a brain surgeon. So I can't explain it to you. I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. So here's an example of a learning objective. Given a patient with a complaint of pain, that's the condition. Given a simulated or an actual patient who's complaining of pain, the healthcare professional, that's the audience, could be the nurse, could be the physician, could be the pharmacist, will be able to administer a multidimensional pain assessment tool. That's the behavior. Capturing all eight elements of symptom analysis. That's the degree. So I got all four in there. Now, often you will put the audience in in the stem. At the end of this lecture, the first year medical resident will be able to do, and that's taken care of for all your learning objectives. But this is really important. So if we go to design an assessment, or you think about this, just looking at this learning objective, what kind of learning objects or tools would you give the student or the medical resident to practice so that they could do this? We're looking at this, not open conversions, but we're looking at pain assessment. How could they practice this? What do you think? Ben, what do you think? Not the assessment. I'm talking about teaching it to them. How am I gonna teach a student cases? First, I could do a little lecture, couldn't I? I actually have in, in our online program, a 10 minute lecture on how to do a multidimensional pain assessment instrument. It could be the brief pain inventory, it could be the McGill questionnaire. I personally like PQRSTU, precipitating, palliating, previous treatment quality, region, radiation, severity, temporal, and associated symptoms. Boom. And then we could have them practice doing it with each other and so forth. And then for the assessment, we could do an OSCE or whatever it we chose to do. So, what do we want our residents to be able to do? after our teaching in Opioid Conversion Calculations. I'm not going to have you pair off and do this because I don't think we have enough time. But if you were gonna do an ABCD, would anybody like to take a crack at this? Anyone would take a crack at sharing one learning objective you would write for our PG-1 medical residents so they could learn to do something to do with Opioid Conversion Calculations. Okay, so I'm not sure. So she said, you know, given a situation, choose the right opioid and then show how to make do the mathematical calculation. <clears throat> I'm not even sure many of that first part about choosing the right opioid. I think I was kind of making that inherent, but certainly you could do that. So here's three that I banged out. So what do you think? Tell me if you see the A, B, C, D in these learning objectives. So at the conclusion of this lecture, the PGY1 medical resident. So that's our audience for all of them. So I got the A down, Pat explain three reasons why we may switch a patient from one opioid regimen to a different opioid regimen given their medical history. Do you see the ABCD there? So actually, let's skip ahead here. So I actually color coordinated them for you. How cool is this? But do you see how valuable this is for the learner? That, that you know, you're gonna, given a simulated patient, that means they're gonna give me an exam. And it's going to be a made-up patient, and they're going to want me to calculate a new opioid regimen using the same opioid but dif- a different formulation, and i got to have 100% accuracy. I mean, that's pretty intense there. So it's really important that you nail down all of these elements. All right, so I think as you're going through this design process and thinking about what are the learning objects I'm going to pick, whether it be a reading or a video or whatever, you have to also be thinking about how am I going to pull this off? Am I going to do online learning? Is it going to be face-to-face? Is it going to be a hybrid, which is a little bit of both? Is it going to be a one-time shot, lunch and learn? Is it going to be 57 sessions over the next three months? How are we going to pull this off? Am I going to do passive learning, the yappity yap, or am I going to do active learning? So for a skill-based activity like opioid conversion calculations, how effective do you think passive learning is going to be? Not very. I mean, when I lecture to my pharmacy students, and I do give a brief lecture on this, they look at me like I am teaching them Russian 601. Like, whoa, what are you talking about? This is from an organization called Quality Matters. And frankly, it was designed to assure appropriate design in online learning. But it is so awesome, I think it is completely applicable to any teaching activity. So if you look at the bottom here of this structure, you have the learning objectives, which is their domain 2.1 and 2.2. Then you end up with the assessments. But what comes in between, here's what I want you to do by the end, and here's how I'm gonna assess to make sure you're doing it, you have your instructional materials. You have course activities, how they're gonna do it, and course tools has to do with like online learning if you're gonna use a learning management system, software and things like that. going to use. So here are some examples of instructional materials. Maybe you're gonna create a handout. Maybe you're gonna give them a cheat sheet. Maybe you're gonna have a job aid. Students love, 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 love infographics. Do you know what I mean by an infographic? Everybody and their mother is now using infographics. If you go to the CDC's website, they have an amazing infographic on their, uh, was it 12 or 14 recommendations with the opioid crisis that they did in 2016. An infographic is splashy and colorful and pictures and students love it because I mean, I I never really believe that people are entirely either auditory or visual learners. I think we've got a little bit of everything in all of us, but when you see a really awesome infographic and you admire how pretty it is, when you're sitting there taking the exam, you can say, you know, I can see that. It was like that second bubble down on the left. They had those three little bullets. I remember that because it was so awesome to look at. It could be a textbook or a chapter. Were you going to say something? Oh, Medscape booth virtual reality glasses. Right here. It's explaining all the parts of the heart. Okay. You put your hand into the heart. Oh. And you're now in the heart. Wow, we're going into the heart. This sounds like that uh that journey to the bottom of the sea only in your body on that little magic school bus thing. <laughs> you have a tool that you can click to overlay let's say some type of uh and uh you know graphic of um uh, some monitoring tool that they used. And so that you That's awesome. So when we leave here, everybody go to the Medscape booth and check it out, okay? It is incredible. Outline of the notes, a textbook chapter, or technology tool. I want to share with you one thing that I discovered that I think is the cat's meow. Merlot.org has nothing to do with wine, okay? So here's the website, Merlot.org, right here. So you go in there and you say, okay, it says, what do you want to know? These this is like 30 bazillion learning objects in here. You can pick the discipline. I just did screenshots here. Whoops, I went too far. Uh, what kind of material do you want? Do you want a case study? How many times have you sat at home trying to prepare something you're going to teach and say, I would give my best kidney for a case that has absolutely r- exactly what I want to teach to these people tomorrow without having to write a whole case from scratch? Are you kidding? I would g- give a kidney for that. And then what's your audience? Am I going to be teaching third grade? or am I gonna be teaching medical professionals here? Then you can narrow it down even more. What kind of technical format? Do you want a Word document? Do you want some kind of an online executable program? And this is all free. Everything in here is free for the asking. What kind of platform? Maybe I want to do it on an iPhone, for example, or an iPad. And then you can even have other filters, like is it Creative Commons? A Creative Commons license has different levels where some levels are you can take my work with my blessing and completely use it, just make sure you keep my name on it, for example. So you can filter by all these different things. So since we're going to be teaching our medical residents it's about dosage calculations. I went in there and looked for dosage calculations. And this was made by a nursing school and they have several things in here. They go over conversions, abbreviations, rounding and even more. So where it said go to material, I clicked and here's the material. So the very first unit is dosage calculation. Now, this is made for nurses, and it's very entry-level. It's things like flow rate and things like that. It doesn't exactly meet my need for conversion calculations, but I just wanted to illustrate how awesome this is. And while you're on that page, it says, okay, so maybe if this didn't meet your need entirely, check all these other cool things we have, drug calculations for nurses, uh, med-calc tutorials, clinical skills, the auscultation assistant. There you go. All right, so what kind of instructional materials should we use for our medical residents? What do you think? What do you want to use? You've been charged with creating this um, educational session of teaching these PGOA1 residents. Are you gonna give them something to read? Are you gonna have them watch a YouTube video? Are we gonna do interpretive dance? What do you want to do? Yeah, what do you want to do? I'll give them a card. Like one of these little awesome cards like this? Totally, okay, what else? Interpretive dance with the card. What else? You wanna do something online? Okay. You wanna give them anything to read or anything? Okay, Dr. Z wants to give them something to read? Okay, so um, again, here are some examples. I think we've touched on most of these. Books chap- book chapters or readings, lecture notes, uh, infographic. Here's an example of an infographic. Um, CDC has a lot of tools, pre recorded lectures. If you're going to do a pre recorded lecture, I despise talking heads. So, when we talk about online learning 25 years ago, here's how it would roll. They would say, take your 50 minute lecture, go sit in front of this video camera, and talk to the camera for 50 minutes, and try to be engaging. Yeah, good luck with that. And then we'll just take it, we'll put it online and make the students watch it. That's about as engaging as a root canal, am I right? So if I do a pre recorded lecture, it's maybe seven or eight minutes. And it's very, very targeted and it's very applied. And I'll sprinkle in multiple choice questions and thought provoking questions and things like that, even with that. So using one of these cool opioid conversion cards. One thing that I'm very fond of, my new great love, is whiteboard activities. You know, when you see something and there's a whiteboard and there's an artist like writing and drawing at the same time, but it's really really fast you can get that software for free and make it happen even if you can't draw a straight line with a ruler it is awesome sauce okay so my resident and I a couple years ago did an infographic on opiate conversion calculations in five easy steps Look how awesome this is here on the left. It's colorful. We've got step one, two, three, four, five, and it kind of goes around here. If you email me, I am happy to share this with you because it is so completely awesome. And then, of course, there's the most awesome book in the universe on, on opioid conversion calculations. Gee, I wonder why I brought that up. Okay, and again, we're still thinking about how we're going to pull this off. Um, how are we going to you know, show that they got it? So, if we're teaching our residents about opiate conversion calculations, are we going to give them a pen and paper exam? I don't know, maybe. Maybe that could be part of it. How about an OSCE, an objective structured clinical exam? Maybe, maybe. So, I think it could be a little bit of everything. This just stresses my point about passive versus active learning. Passive learning is learning objectives like define, describe, list, and explain. You know, explain how you can go from rocks and All to MS-Contin. If I can explain it to you, can you explain it back to me? Uh, you will remember 10% of that, if I'm very lucky. And then going on to what you hear, what you see, 50% of what you see and hear. So maybe I've got that going for me because you're looking at the slide and you're hearing me talk. But if I make you write something down, like often, even if I am obligated to give a 50 minute lecture, I'll pause and say, okay, let's take a 60 second break. And I want you to turn to the kid next to you and re-explain what I just talked about to your neighbor and I'm going to call on somebody to explain it to the whole class. Well, now they're terrified because I'm going to call on somebody. So they're going to take it seriously. But boy, that cements it in. I mean, I'm very fond of that expression from Joubert who says, to teach is to learn twice. I tell him, I teach a course on study skills. I say, you don't have to study. Go home with your notes and explain it to the dog. If you can explain what I just taught you to the dog, you don't have to memorize it because you own it. How awesome is that? And then 90% of what you do So what is active learning? I love active learning. I'm a big fan of a flipped classroom. So if there's reading or videos to be, um, consume, you can do that at home on your own time. When you come to class and you're taking up my time, we're gonna do cases, we're gonna do active learning. I'm gonna put you to work using that background content. So students are engaged in their own learning. It's way more than taking notes. It puts the responsibility for learning on the student. Gaming is one way to do it. Like, I don't know how many of you were at the thing we did yesterday morning at seven o'clock we played Jeopardy, Every, nobody fell asleep. At freaking seven in the morning, granted we did give Amazon $5 gift cards, which was kind of awesome, but it was fun. And you learn stuff. It was just wonderful. So, lower level active learning. So, if I have 300 students in a classroom, I can engage them in their notes. So, rewrite what I just said in your own words in your notes, for example. I, can, I love a think, pair, share. Richard, get with the lady in the stripes behind you. Talk about this for 30 seconds, 60 seconds. Um, some people have bought the audience response systems. I'm very fond of things like Kahoot. Kahoot is an online, like, poll everywhere.com. Kahoot, I'll put a question up here. Everybody logs into the Kahoot website. Everybody's got wireless, of course. Everybody's got a phone or you can do it on your computer. Check out Kahoot, dot com, And they can pick any name. So my students do crazy things like Darth Vader and Snow White. So, and then I'll start the quiz and you'll see, oh, Darth Vader is winning by a mile and Snow White is in second place and they just love it. Um, So lots of different things you could do. I do like team-based learning. Has anybody ever used team-based learning? it's pretty awesome. So you have a team of learners, and they wrestle with a question or a case or something like that, and they have to agree on the answer, and they have to say why the correct answer is correct, and why all the wrong answers are wrong. So I literally am going to give you 30 seconds to talk to anybody around you, and you have to decide. You have one more residency position open, and you have five candidates. Discuss the pros and the cons of each, and who are you going to pick? Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, the Lion, or the Wizard of Oz? 30 seconds, go. Alright, it's been thirty seconds. Did anybody come up with a winner? Alright, who, who's whose one did you pick? You picked the tin men? Why? well organized a good the Once he got yeah, but one good rainstorm and he's screwed. You know what I mean? Well, what about the one with the wizard though? Dorothy is such a, so lost in the woods. Why not the wizard? I mean, he's the boss. Why not him? He was a poser. Yeah. So, but so all right. You got thirty seconds. Yeah. I'm sorry. Darth Vader. Yeah, we could have picked Darth Vader. Yeah, but Snow White could take him in a pinch. Okay. Now you got to do this one. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. MJ is a 58-year-old woman with painful diabetic neuropathy. She has tried wearing socks to bed for the numb type feeling with no luck. Discuss the pros and cons of each of the following analgesics to treat the complaint. Which will you choose? Acetaminophen, naproxen, dexamethasone, gabapentin, or methadone? Go ahead. You have 30 seconds. All right, do we have a clear answer? Anybody have an answer for me? Why gabapentin? I'm sorry, what? Who's talking over here? I can't hear you. What'd you say? Go ahead. Anybody? So it's been shown to be effective for diabetic neuropathy. Why not uh, acetaminophen or naproxen? You like that one? You all like that, huh? Why did you like it? So what do you base that on? All right, so we got to vote for, because of the toxicity, not using GABA, but maybe using acetaminophen. What do the rest of you think of that? Okay, I agree with you that naproxen is not great for the kidneys, but what's the bigger issue with acetaminophen and naproxen with neuropathic pain? It does not work. You might as well give her Skittles. It still won't work, but it's a lot more fun. Am I right? Why not methadone, my favorite drug in the universe? We're kind of pushing the game here a little bit, aren't we? Good grief. All right, so gabapentin. And we're not going to belabor this, but here's one we could give our PGY1 medical residents. Miss Smith is a 62-year-old woman diagnosed with colon cancer, status post-resection. On post-op day three, over the past 12 hours, she has used five milligrams of IV hydromorphone. Her physician wants to send her home on an equivalent dose of oral hydromorphone, which is correct. One, two, four, eight, Q4. There's a lot going on here. They have to recognize that five milligrams over the last 12 hours is really because people are getting better every 12 hours post-operatively. So we would take the last 12 hours and say five, that's really 10 milligrams in 24 hours, that's one principle right there. Then they have to know the conversion from IV hydromorphone to oral hydromorphone so they can whip out their card and say, holy moly, two milligrams IV is five milligrams oral. And then they would do the math. And of course the answer would be C, four milligrams Q4. All right. I think So here's what I came up with. Tell me what you think. Here's, if I was going to do this and train PGY-1 residents who have 8 billion things to do, but this is a critically important skill, I would first give them a little something to read, maybe a brief chapter, maybe a very brief paper that really cuts to the chase. I would use, I, I, and I've done this for my students. I went to our recording studio where we have a big screen with a pen and I could write on it just like a whiteboard and I did several examples. And you know how when you're in somebody's office and they do something on the computer and you're like, whoa, whoa, What did you just do? How did you make that table? Could you back up and show me that again? It is like a a Kodak moment, isn't it? So I actually took several examples and said, all right, let's look at this patient. She's on X amount of oral morphine. I want to switch to transdermal fentanyl. Here's how I do the math. So I'm drawing and I'm talking at the same time. So the visual learners, the auditory learners, you got it going on. So I'm going to do that for them. Then I'm going to give them a sample problem set to work on over lunch, these 10 residents in a room, and I'm gonna feed them, because if you feed them, they will come, right? Field of Dreams, and then I'm gonna send them home with another practice set, and for both of these, I'm gonna have the keys posted online, and then I'm gonna give them a final exam to take home with a key. So what do you think about that? A practice final exam, and then I'll probably do another final exam to round it all out. Multiple opportunities to practice. Of course, they would say, call me anytime." but what do you think? Do you think this is an appropriate online strategy to teach them? yeah not very boring really really practical i think that's the nicest compliment i ever get from anybody is you're a really practical teacher because i hate silly activities and then one of the other um columns we had was the course tools so we could certainly we could do powerpoint we could narrate powerpoint if you have the latest version of powerpoint what is super awesome now it is powered by camtasia This is a maze ball. So you put on your little headset with the thingy, you open up your slides, you go to slideshow, you pick record presentation, captures the images and the timing, and then you just talk. You talk about your slide. Make sure you don't keep talking as you go to the next slide, because sometimes it gets cut off. So finish speaking, click, then start speaking again. Then when you're done, save it. Then when you go under file, you can click on export, and you can export it as an MP4 file, which is a video, so it just roll seamlessly and it's a beautiful thing. I do have the software for both Camtasia and Captivate, Pretty awesome. Camtasia is pretty easy. Captivate, well, that's kind of a horse of a different color, but you can do quizzing right in that presentation, uh, but it's a higher cognitive level skill to get it done. Audio and video recordings. I mean, I, subs- I love Zoom for video conferencing. I pay for Zoom because I, I do Zoom every day of my life. It's a day without sunshine if I don't use my Zoom, but I can just log on to my own Zoom and record something. I can record a video or I can record audio. It's amazeballs. And then if you're doing online learning, one little tip for you. I'm sure you all heard of Blackboard. Mike, my, my university uses Blackboard. Coursites.com, C O C-O-U-R-S-E, U um, R S E S I T E S dot com, plural, is the free version of Blackboard. Anybody can use it. You can set up to five courses up under your email address. So we've all got a home email and a work email. Bingo, you've got 10 courses right there you can do. You can set up your own free online course. It's amazing. All right. So then the development is actually pulling together all your materials, getting the hard work done, testing it, making sure people understand it, and then you implement it, of course, and then you begin your evaluation, which I think is the second most important part. I think the most important is analysis. So evaluation actually happens throughout the entire process, as you can see here. Uh, But when we talk about evaluating the outcomes of education, according to Kirkpatrick, there are four levels of evaluation. So I'll explain them to you and then you can tell me what level of evaluation you've been doing here at Pain Week. Level one is this, kind. it's called a smile sheet. How was your time well spent in this training activity? Would you recommend this course or this lecture to a coworker? What did you like the best? What did you like the least? Were the objectives clear? Was the room comfortable? How was lunch? Was it prepared to your satisfaction? So this is a smile sheet, a level one, for teaching our PGY-1 residents. This program content met my needs. Strongly agree, agree, neutral disagree, strongly disagree. The length was appropriate, the course content was appropriate. And then I have my three terminal performance objectives and whether or not they agree that we address those. Level two is measuring the learning they acquired. And you do this immediately after the training. So, for example, here's a pen and paper quiz based on opiate conversion calculations. So, here I have a case. Um, I'm asking, what is the term for pain from touch? What's the right answer, people? Is it hyperpathia, allodynia, friability, or hypoesthesia? Pain from touch. Allodynia. Look how smart y'all are. I'm so proud. Now, level one and level two are pretty easy to pull together and to execute. Level three and level four is the payoff though, but it's much harder to do these. Level three is, are the trainees now doing things differently in practice? So how would you do a level three assessment of our PGY-1 medical residents after going through this conversion calculation training? You would do what? You would say, show me your calculation. Yeah, you could be the attending and say, look, before you do it, I want you to call me and run through it with me. Absolutely, we have a program, I work for a very large hospice, and I have a methadone training program for physicians, and to get quote certified by, I'm not quite sure who, they have to go through my online course, which is amazing, and they have to call me for 20 methadone conversion calculations. And when they get 20 in a row correct, they can fly on their own. We take that really seriously. Then level four, this is the big payoff. Discharge patient satisfaction ratings, for example. So three is, are they doing things differently because of the training? And four is, remember that performance problem in the beginning, your current state versus the desired state? Are we at the desired state now? So for example what would this look like here? So um, we talked about, here's a level one smile sheet. Level two for our little PGY-1 residents is these are the conversion calculation questions we would do immediately after the training. Level three is observing them, doing things differently. We could have them call the attending. We could have them do, we could do a chart audit. And level four, what got us into this mess? Sentinel events that were occurring. Hopefully we will have no more Sentinel events after we have done such an amazeballs job in teaching these residents, what do you think?